0: Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash business gold card.
0: Hello, Odd lots listeners. Of course, normally we release new episodes on Monday, but today we're bringing you a special midweek episode. That's because it's a very timely one. Obviously, a lot of interest in the coronavirus and the effect that it's having on supply chains around the world. So we didn't want to wait. We didn't want to slot it in future in the schedule. We wanted to get it out now and uh, hopefully you enjoy. And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal.
2: And I'm Tracy Alloway.
0: Tracy, you know what's really struck me in the markets over the last several weeks?
2: Uh, Go on.
0: Well, obviously, the uh, crisis over the coronavirus continues to be this massive uh, story for the global economy, for China, Asia, uh, all kinds of different companies. And yet investors in a weird way outside of uh, some specific names or specific currencies still seem surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly, but generally not that worried right now.
2: Yeah, Um, I find this pretty amazing. So at the time that we're recording, I think the S&P 500 is still pretty close to its all time high. And what amazes me about that is we spent two years collectively worrying about how trade tensions between the U.S. and China were going to affect uh, global supply chains and economic growth and consumption. And we sort of followed every tiny in and out when it came to the trade negotiations. And now when you have something, uh, the coronavirus and the containment efforts underway in China, you have something that is guaranteed to impact production. And consumption in the world's second biggest economy, as well as disrupt a bunch of supply chains. And no one seems to care.
0: Yeah, it's it's really odd. It's really surprising. It's counterintuitive. It's not what I would have guessed. Even this week, the week that we're recording it, uh, we got um, a warning from one of the sort of emblems of U.S.-China trade globalization, Apple, which is heavily exposed to China on the supply chain front and heavily exposed to China on uh, the revenue front, saying, look, this quarter is going to be worse than we previously expected. Factories aren't opening up uh, for our suppliers as fast as we had anticipated a couple of weeks ago. We're not totally sure when things will be uh, back to normal, Uh, not to mention the fact that uh, people are out less shopping. And, uh, you know, the stock fell about 2% uh, in the immediate wake of that, maybe because— People figured this was the case already, and then the next day, the stock immediately basically erased all of those losses. So even a company coming out and saying, um, "You know, this is a serious issue for us," even it's not having that much effect on them right now. I guess people are so confident that the effects will just be transitory, and everyone will okay, but be back to uh, be back to work eventually.
2: Yeah, and uh, our colleagues over at Bloomberg Intelligence actually counted up the number of companies that are talking about the coronavirus at the moment, and I think they counted something like $9 trillion worth, or companies accounting for $9 trillion worth of market cap have mentioned the coronavirus, but... So far, we only really have a handful of them who are issuing, you know, the kind of warnings that we saw from Apple. Most of them are just talking about how it's too early to say that, you know, they'll get a direct hit. But again, frankly, watching all of this uh, go down in, in China and in Asia, I find it really difficult to see how global supply chains would not be impacted at this point.
0: Right. So obviously, look, we don't know what the markets are going to do and nobody does. And we'll just see what happens. But uh, I do think and I did think in light of that Apple warning, we really need to dive deeper into the question of supply chains, because so much of the world, so much so many companies that manufacture anything are exposed to uh, China or East Asia in some way and getting some sort of handle on what the risks are is uh, key and what the risks, of course, to the China economy are going to be. That's also key. Uh, So that's what we're going to discuss today.
2: Great. I think that's a good, good, good idea, given the circumstances. Let's do it.
0: All right. We have a really great guest. We've had him on the podcast, I think, a couple of times before, at least once, but I'm pretty sure uh, twice. Uh, He's Dan Wang. He's an analyst at Gavcal Dragonomics. He's talking to us from Beijing. He's a tech analyst, really knows a lot about Chinese manufacturing, Chinese supply chains, the interaction with global tech, and uh, he'll walk us through the risks posed by this virus, what we're seeing right now, as well as other risks that maybe people aren't even thinking about right now beyond the virus. So, uh, Dan, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks very much for having me on again.
0: We've all seen the images of uh, various cities across China, either quarantined or de facto quarantined, empty streets and so forth. We know that there are numerous factories that have yet to reopen, and the uh, schedule for that uh, remains unclear. We got the warning this week from Apple that this is going to be a hit to their performance in the current quarter. So that's known. What to you, based on your work that you're doing looking at the Uh, industry, what you've seen, what really uh, jumps out at you in terms of the coronavirus hit to uh, China's industrial economy?
3: So I think you've uh, led uh, by saying uh, in a really good way by saying that basically the market seems to be breaking all of this off. I think there could be uh, an economics way of thinking about that uh, in just uh, you know, if you assume that the virus is going to be mostly contained in this current quarter, and you know, there's some evidence that uh, that could be the case, um, and that uh, the Chinese economy will uh, basically bounce back into the normal previous trend growth that we were all expecting, there will be some pent-up demand that would be released uh, later on, and um, you know, the, the, it will be a quite bad quarter, uh, but everything gets back to trend. I think that case could be made uh, for the general macroeconomy, and that's why most people are not reacting very much. But in terms of electronics, uh, I think that story would not be so simple. And that's because electronics manufacturing is uh, some of, involves uh, most, some of the most complex supply chains ever. Um, you need basically a lot of different components in place. In order to begin production, you need uh, a thousand and one or or maybe even a million and one components uh, all at the right place uh, and all at the right time. And so, if you have um, this delay, uh, which hasn't really resolved itself yet, I think that can ripple on uh, and cascade on throughout the supply chain all the way throughout the rest of the year uh, when it comes to basically the peak selling season, which is the uh, Christmas season in the US. I think that will Hmm. ripple on throughout the rest of the year.
2: How much flexibility is there when it comes to uh, altering global supply chains for electronics companies? Because you know, during the trade tensions, we saw a lot of people talking about, well, they'll just move production from China to Vietnam or to wherever. There was that option, but in the current situation, it it seems like, first of all, you'd have to do it much, much more quickly, Um, and secondly. No one's really sure how the virus is going to play out, so you don't necessarily have the motivation to move production if you're thinking that it's going to end very, very quickly. So how easy is it to to shift supply chains for electronics companies?
3: It is all pretty difficult, uh, and we have not seen a, a great deal of production move overseas um, as a result of the U.S. tariffs on Chinese production. We have, have certainly seen some have seen a few marginal products, uh, some things like servers and some things like wearables uh, move overseas, especially to Vietnam. That's the most cited place. But uh, in general, it hasn't been a wholesale uh, movement of supply chains. And I think um, that's uh, a a pretty difficult thing for uh, companies to deal with on a short term. Um, A a manufacturer um, made a statement a, a while ago to say that, you know, the tariffs are something that we can deal with. That's, a cost increase. And that's something we have to enter into, but that is a a predictable and something uh, something that we are able to resolve. Whereas um, if we do not have a lot of parts, uh, as the coronavirus has threatened, um, if we do not have workers in our factories because they just are not coming back, or we cannot pass these sanitary checks or uh, quarantine checks uh, uh, imposed by the local government, then we don't even have the parts in place to engage in production. So this is like a much bigger deal.
0: Talk to us a little bit more about modern electronic supply chains. And in, in a sense, uh, they're an absolute marvel because all these different companies come together and the logistics are such that companies can hold very little inventory and and the key part arrives just in time for the other company or the un- other manufacturer to assemble it into something, and then that goes into something else, and it's this sort of beautiful orchestra, maybe, when it's working uh, when it's working ideally. Talk to us about what you said when uh, you pointed out, look, it's not as simple as just restarting this. Because it's so complex, it's not just a matter of, okay, the switch goes off for a few weeks, and then maybe you just uh, turn it back on. What is that cascading effect you're talking about, and why is it not so simple to get it going again once once, uh, you're ready to restart?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. So basically, to really get production going at a major manufacturer like Foxconn, uh, you need a a lot of different components uh, in place. So you need, uh, let's say, something like a thousand components in place you need all of the labor uh, in place also to begin staffing. Uh, You need to make sure that all of the components are um, arriving on a daily basis, uh, that um, there is uh, a lot of flow. You need to make sure that the components are of pretty good quality, and you need to make sure that the labor is of good quality. And right now, basically, none of those conditions are holding. Uh, So, Foxconn has not, uh, said, uh, very, uh, publicly, uh, very much about how many, uh, workers have been able to return. Um, our estimate is that something like half of China's, uh, migrant labor force has, uh, arrived back into, uh, factories. It's going to take uh, quite a while, uh, probably in March or early April for everyone to get back. And so, you know, I think that the larger manufacturers are probably able to deal uh, with a lot of these problems. So Foxconn, uh, in spite of uh, a lot of bad press it has received over the last decade, is still the best paying uh, of the large manufacturers. It has the best working conditions. Um, it is just really large. It employs about uh, a million people in China every year. And then the five other big contract manufacturers in Taiwan um, employ about collectively uh, 500,000, so about 1.5 million people total uh, working on um, uh, just just directly on all types of electronics, but especially the smartphone. And so basically, Apple needs a lot of people uh, in place, um, and it should be able to hire all of the people that it needs. But if Foxconn is able to uh, hire for everyone because it is working for its largest customer, Apple, which has a lot of cash to throw at these problems. Um, it might suck away the labor from uh, a lot of the sub-assemblers, uh, so the component makers that are supplying goods uh, for Foxconn to put onto lines hmm. uh, of people to actually produce. So, you know, again, I, I want to emphasize that um, it only takes a few missing parts for an entire uh, supply chain not to be functional. And so there will be a lot of these. Uh, gaps out there, um, even for Apple. Uh, Apple every year launches a uh, new iPhone by Q4. That is uh, highly predictable. But even for Apple, it is a pretty hot affair. The supply chains are pretty tight and uh, every week counts uh, towards Q4. And not very many firms have a few weeks of production to lose. So my thought here is that um, even though large manufacturers are working for um, you know, large consumer electronics companies like Apple are able to get through this, many smaller companies are going to have a, a lot more problems. Q1 is typically the time of the year where uh, many consumer electronics companies um, engage in prototyping and development uh, with, the, uh, the, with the manufacturers. And if the manufacturers just are have persistent labor shortages and supply shortages, they're going to be dedicating uh, all of their people to their large customers like Apple. And uh, I think the, 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 the case would be here that this year that consumer electronics will be uh, pretty bad. A lot of smaller companies won't even be able to launch the products they had uh, hoped to launch by the Christmas season. It's, it's, that's already probably the case. And it's going to be a stretch even for Apple. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
2: Could you talk to us a little bit more about the labor shortage idea and how the containment efforts that we've seen rolled out across China at this point, how those actually impact uh, the way the labor market functions?
3: So China today has a lot of restrictions in place in who can go where. Uh, when I leave my apartment in Beijing, I have to flash this little card at uh, these uh, doormen who have are newly set up to uh, exit and enter the building. Um, every uh, three blocks I go, there is someone taking um, my temperature to make sure uh, that I'm all right. And one thing that uh, I'm struck by now is that uh, the The amount of uh, state capacity that China has brought to bear on this problem is uh, impressive and uh, also frightening that uh, China has uh, been able to quarantine about 60 million people around the population of Italy in the span of around 12 hours. Uh, my, My thought here is that China can mobilize its citizens more quickly than many countries can mobilize their armies. And so it is imposing uh, many sorts of um, restrictions on labor um, even today many uh, migrants are not able to enter the large cities uh, to actually begin uh, production so a lot of uh, the public transportation in terms of trains are shut a lot of uh, roads are a lot of cars are not able to uh, go on the road and uh, this is creating a lot of uh, problems for factories that really need labor and I think the the biggest issue here is that there's considerable uncertainty about when um, this uh, virus could be declared eradicated and for everybody to feel safe to go back uh, to uh, their jobs. So these uh, travel restrictions could evaporate, um, let's say, next week. Um, or take could take uh, something uh, longer, uh, let's say a month, um, but it will take probably uh, even longer for uh, all of the flights to resume and for all of the people to feel that they can safely travel about in China. And that will uh, create a lot of uncertainties. There is just a lot of human contact still required for uh, to engage in production,
2: yeah, and one of the things that we've seen anecdotally as well is this notion of a sort of patchwork of local and uh national rules. so for instance, in order to open up a factory, you know local officials will require. The factory owner to give face masks to all of its workers. But of course, there's a giant face mask shortage. And so they're unable to do that. And we've seen a lot of chaos, uh, let's say, and confusion uh, when it comes to what the rules are and what they are not when it comes to uh, work environments.
0: Right, uh, trying to deal with that right around the holiday, and uh, you know the huge uh, moves, extraordinary. Dan, is there a compounding effect of the delays, such that okay, uh, you know, I know that at one point the goal was okay, reopen by February tenth. That didn't happen in many cases. But is there a sort of nonlinearity where a week of delays does not just mean a week of problems, and each week? the uh, the the situation uh, sort of snowballs and grows uh, you know compounds or grows exponentially.
3: Yes, there is that risk that there is a lot nonlinear aspect to this. Um, if you were expecting basically a lot of components to arrive and uh, if you don't, then um, a, a lot of manufacturers uh, could be quite stuck. And for uh, the manufacturers like Foxconn, who are at the end of a supply chain, basically waiting for everybody to send everything through. They don't necessarily have great visibility into which little part uh, they require that just doesn't uh, necessarily make it. So um, every time there's an earthquake uh, in Japan, um, it reminds us, uh, reminds the world about how uh, dependent uh, the entire world is on perhaps a particular factory making a particular widget. And so um, these things can uh, be a little bit unpredictable. But I think the the uh, I think. The the, the large companies like Apple realize that um, at this point, and I think everybody is going to be in a scramble in the coming weeks to really understand how deep the supply chains are. Uh, Another issue for Apple right now is that Apple sends a lot of engineers from its uh, headquarters in Cupertino to come over to China and then actually monitor, uh, station these engineers and monitor the progress that these component makers have uh, for quality assurance and product development purposes. A lot of those flights are canceled, and I expect that Apple is only able to send a trickle of staff uh, over to China to actually uh, monitor uh, all of that production. So there are a lot of these risks out there.
2: Uh, Dan, talk to us a, a little bit about, uh, I guess, the big picture long term impact when it comes to China's technology ambition. So I think the first time we had you on this podcast was to talk about the Made in China 2025 initiative, where China is really trying to bulk up its own technology expertise. Would you expect something like the coronavirus outbreak to have a long-term impact on those efforts?
3: Uh, Certainly, I think it will uh, push greater geographic diversity. Uh, I think that um the, 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 the events of the last two years have shown that companies are highly dependent on China for production. I think many companies are thinking more deeply about uh, what geographic diversity actually means. So previously we we thought that geographic diversity um you know is important in case there's a flood or an earthquake, which are fairly localized events. And so if you want to basically have a more robust supply chain, you should Locate a lot of your factories just geographically quite far away from each other. And I think the events, at least of the last uh, year, have shown that um, when President Trump has uh, imposed uh, tariffs on Chinese goods, that there is a political element. Um, so even if you produce in northern China and then uh, southeastern China, you may necessarily, you might still be hit by a lot of these same risks. Now, whether uh, and how it impacts uh, China's technology development. I think it is going to make it a little bit more difficult for China to do everything that it would like. Um, At the very least, it is turning uh, some uh, foreigners and expats uh, off the idea of living uh, for uh, most of the time in uh, places like uh, Beijing and Shanghai. And I think that uh, will be at least a loss of um, potential talent that Chinese firms are able to hire.
0: Dan, I think... uh... That's a great opportunity to sort of segue into another um, another risk factor facing uh, Chinese manufacturing Chinese supply chain because it was just a few months ago that there was this thought that, okay, the big risk was just on the trade front. That seems to uh, have cleared up. They got the phase one deal. Now suddenly there's this, which is uh, you know, as you point, could potentially change everything or at least, Change uh, really changed the way companies around the world uh, think about their exposure to China. But as you uh, point out, and as you've been writing, the coronavirus is really not the only major threat to uh, Chinese supply chains, Chinese manufacturing, and that there's another thing lurking out there that uh, people need to pay attention to. So, what is that?
3: So, that is the um, the current U.S. policy on how to restrict technology flows to China. And so uh, there, as part of the trade war, there has also been a bit of a tech war hovering in the background uh, in terms of uh, U.S. policy action. I think the uh, first major shot of that was uh, last year, or, or, or almost a year and a half ago now, when uh, President Trump's administration designated ZTE to something called the deny persons list, which more or less cut off ZTE's entire ability to procure from American technology, especially semiconductors. And so that has uh, brought the firm to its knees uh, almost to the verge of bankruptcy until uh, President Xi and Trump uh, reached a political solution to save the company. So there has been this element hovering in the background of the U.S. exercising investment restrictions uh, on um, uh, the ability of foreigners to uh, invest in U.S. firms, especially technology firms. There has been a process uh, initiated by the Department of Justice to scrutinize Chinese actions much more closely in terms of trade secret misappropriation, but also uh, Chinese activities in, say, um, universities working with certain professors. And then it has also manifested in uh, specifically this um, issue of Huawei becoming a large player in the uh, tech world, and then the administration is uh, thinking much more carefully now about how to deny uh, products, American products to a firm that it considers a national security threat.
2: What would be the impact on China's tech industry if the U.S. does actually go through um, with a lot of the things that it's threatening, and what options does China have to offset the impact of those curves?
3: I think the uh, issue right now for China is to figure out how to Americanize supply chain. So um, again, this is uh, sort of a um, supply chain story in which the lack of a few components can really defeat. So if you take a look at your smartphone, it has something like 1,500 different components in it. And if you lack even three or four different components, uh, the whole system uh, might be defeated. So your phone needs, for example, a battery, it needs a processor, it needs uh, memory chips, uh, and it needs uh, a screen. And if you don't have these, uh, then you don't really have a phone. And given that uh, the U.S. has figured out that um, it is uh, almost a monopolist on very important technologies, especially the semiconductor, and by denying U.S. semiconductors to particular firms, uh, previously VTE, this figured out it can really cripple uh, China's uh, technology advancement. Now, I take the view that um, over the long term, uh, China now that has realized that it's very dependent on uh, U.S. technologies it should be able to uh, figure out uh, a lot of its own technologies um, uh, in turn. So um, it's difficult to name in history a uh, country that has monopolized a key technology over the long term. So in the 18th century, when the U.K. was the leading industrial power at the time and when it tried to export control certain textile um, mills uh, and machinery to the U.S., uh, rising power, Certain people just memorized a bunch of mill designs, uh, gone onto a ship and then went to the U.S. So one of these people is uh, Samuel Slater, um, who's known uh, in the U.K. as Slater the Creator and um, Stateside as uh, the father of the U.S. Industrial Revolution. A lot of knowledge just consists in people's heads uh, and um, transfers. I used to work in Silicon Valley. The saying that we had there was that knowledge travels at the speed of beer, uh, beer or coffee, bigger poison. And so long as you can just talk through these sort of things, um, and uh, a, a lot of technology uh, is able to travel. The Chinese don't have to invent anything de novo. Um, they only have to replicate existing processes. But that is still uh, a pretty big challenge. Um, the U.S. is uh, basically a monopolist in very many key semiconductor technologies, including the capital equipment, to actually fabricate the semiconductors, and uh, also in things like aviation engines, uh, in which China is also trying to catch up. And so this is why there has been a pretty active debate uh, in the White House on how to actually restrict a lot more technologies to China while also being able to protect the ability of U.S. firms to sell goods to their largest uh, market and then also uh, generate the revenue for greater R&D.
0: It's so interesting uh, just sort of thinking about the symmetry or the e- asymmetry, or I guess it's the symmetry of the needs and priorities of China when it comes to trade and the needs and priorities of the U.S. when it comes to trade. Obviously, we know President Trump feels that he would like to bring back jobs uh, from China. And though maybe, you know, it's debatable whether anything that's been done so far uh, would really accomplish that. Obviously, that was a key driving aspect of his campaign and his message and so forth. And then you have the Chinese economy and the or the Chinese priorities that you've talked to us on the uh, podcast before, and it's not about jobs per se. It's about the over reliance and uh, you know winning back uh, the tech tech war against uh, the U.S. So it's really sort of the same thing in a sense of both just wanting to not need the other.
3: Yeah, that's right. So uh, both countries are trying to reach uh, the upper preserves of technology, which is. Uh, right now, mostly an American affair. And uh, the Chinese are also wanting many of the same things.
0: So, I guess then my question is you know, obviously, you know, in the first half of the conversation, you were talking about, okay, U.S. companies are going to think about geographic diversity for manufacturing. And of course, during the trade war, we heard a lot about Vietnam. But there's really no country immediately that can just suddenly absorb. Uh, A huge influx of new demand for manufacturing. I mean, there's just all kinds of things that need to go into that. It's not like you just build a Foxconn in Vietnam overnight or a Foxconn in Brazil overnight or anything like that. Who wins the race? Like how long, uh, say, will it take for China to accomplish what it needs on sort of, uh, you know, uh, being able to design some of its own uh, semiconductors so that it can wean itself off of U.S. tech?
3: That's a great question, uh, thinking about it in terms of a race. And I uh, tend to think that the U.S. has the advantage here. It is a lot more straightforward for uh, Apple to move most of its supply chain out of China uh, and into, let's say, a mix of places that include uh, India, Brazil, uh, and Vietnam. Uh, Then it is for China to figure out semiconductors, which are the most complex technologies in the world. When I think of something like a semiconductor manufacturing equipment from a firm like uh, ASML, um, basically these uh, pieces of machinery are uh, uh, about as large as buses. Each machine costs about 200 million US dollars. Um, And you're really playing with light and physics uh, and math at that point. It's almost like a pure science affair. And the Chinese just have not had enough experience uh, really doing a lot of these things now there the the question then becomes uh when the us exercises these export control uh, actions on china does it accelerate china's technology development or does it uh, really cripple it i i think uh, uh, all over the long term it should still be uh, accelerating china's technology development so um right now the you know the chinese have always had a program to replace uh, its own internal uh, the technologies that it uses with um, you know, Chinese-made uh, equipment. Part of that has is that has always been a program, that has somewhat accelerated um, in uh, 2013 after the Snowden revelations of um, uh, different uh, spying. And I think the uh, Chinese now are um, this is uh, the, the 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 difference in the last uh, two years is that. This is no longer a whimsical government effort, which has never really uh, been terribly successful in the past. Now, this is led much more by private companies, uh, by firms like um, Alibaba or uh, Tencent or Hypevision or Xiaomi that are asking themselves, can I depend on American supply such that I'm willing to build my my technology off an American stack uh, for the next 10 years? and um, they are becoming a little bit more hesitant to do something like that. Um, and so they are taking the lead in trying to develop uh, it's their uh, more homegrown, more politically dependable uh, component.
2: Uh, so, Dan, just to sum it all up, I'm kind of curious to get uh, some of your personal observations about the situation at the moment. What has surprised you about how the coronavirus or the containment efforts around the coronavirus have impacted either the tech industry or the electronics industry? What was most surprising?
3: I think the uh, speed and scale of the payment um, efforts, uh, I think after Wuhan was quarantined. Um, First of all, they quarantined Wuhan uh, really quickly. And uh, basically, there has been a, a, a really uh, enormous demonstration of um, state uh, um, power here and uh, state capacity here. And I think we're now trying to figure out, um, given that there are some encouraging signs that the virus uh, is evading, um, the number of infections ex uh, Hubei, uh has been in the double digits, I think, for the last three days, meaning that uh, the epidemic uh, seems to be mostly contained in uh, in Hubei and Wuhan. And uh, the question now is uh, really how to restart the economy. So they have been really good at making sure that people are in their place and that um, the state has the ability to quarantine very many people. Um, now, I think the interesting point to watch is how quickly they can reverse a lot of these restrictions to Uh, well everyone's fears and then really restart the economy because a lot of things are just halted now
0: well dan uh really appreciate you joining us always love uh chatting with you and we should probably you know do one again maybe in uh three months or six months and just uh sort of reassess where things are uh on the supply chain and the degree to which the industrial economy has been able to uh come back but dan thank you and uh Hope everything returns to some semblance of normalcy fairly soon. Thanks very much, Sha.
2: Thanks so much, Dan. It was really good. So, Joe, I found that conversation really, really interesting. It's nice to dig deep into the supply chain issue. And I do think there seems to be a sense out there that they can be very flexible and they can be reoriented as needed. But as Dan pointed out, they they're actually quite complex and it takes time to move these things.
0: No, there are so many things that uh, he pointed out that I hadn't seen anyone discuss uh, uh, before thinking about. So, for example, okay, Christmas uh, shopping or holiday uh, electronic sales, that seems like a long time from now. But if the basic prototyping of the next generation of any products is Q1 and Q1 is looking like for sure a total disaster, then, okay, even if there is a big economic rebound, in Q2 which we don't know for sure yet but even if there is there will be inevitably this cascading effect that lasts at least uh through the year and that uh to some extent there's no uh getting back this lost time.
2: Yeah, and the other thing I've been thinking about is we you know, we were just speaking about the production side of things, but you would think that the coronavirus outbreak is going to end up having a very very large impact on consumption as well. So China is basically in for both a supply And demand shock to its economy. And I also wonder when it comes to the consumption decline, how long is that going to last? And is it going to be similar like supply chains in that it takes a while to get back to normal? You know, the the Chinese government has spent so long uh, telling people that they really need to make efforts to contain the virus. They have to stay at home. Is it going to be easy for them to lift those and suddenly tell everyone, oh, everything's back to normal. You don't need to worry anymore, to Dan's point uh, in the last question.
0: Yeah, totally. Because, uh, you know, there's obviously there's no cure. There's no vaccine that we have or anything like that yet. So to declare victory over the virus or to declare that it's uh, been eradicated seems like an extremely difficult thing. And even after, uh, you know, people start coming back to work, it seems plausible that fear of a new outbreak or fear of just one person having it and spreading into a new super spreader situation could really uh, change how people behave, at least for quite some time after, uh, you know, after whatever, that the idea of any sort of imminent uh, resumption of normal life, it kind of seems implausible.
2: There's so much going on. It's such an interesting story and really sort of unprecedented in in many ways so what a fascinating topic to talk about
0: hearing dan talk about how there's someone who checks um checks his temperature literally every three blocks and as he pointed out the state capacity required simply to set that up i mean it's just extraordinary to think about what they what has been done already
2: yeah, they're doing it in Hong Kong as well, though not quite on that scale. But certainly to get into uh, the major office buildings at the moment, you have to get your uh, temperature taken. So it's a big change. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our producer on Twitter. Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of the Bloomberg podcasts under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.